morning to those of you uh, here in person and those watching online. Uh, it's great to be back up here in the pulpit after being gone for a long time over in Taiwan. And just wanted to let you know that um, Caleb, our new son, is doing great. Um, he's really a very, very happy kid. Um, and I also want you to know that uh, just as like little kids in America love to say no, um, he loves to say no too. It's just booyah! That's, how, that's what it is in Mandarin. It's a pretty cool word, actually. It sounds like booyah a little bit. But anyway, you know, I was thinking about like how hard this must be for him because he doesn't speak English. Right? I mean, like he, he has three words or something like that that he knows in English. And so he doesn't really know what we are saying to him. And you think about like this kid who these, these white people come and like, oh, you're, these are your new parents. And he just decides he's going to, Go with it. You know, all right, cool, I'll, I'll, I'll leave Taiwan. I'll leave everything I've ever known and just go to Florida with them. Oh, great. I mean, that takes some faith. I mean, I feel like Caleb is to be commended for his faith in just putting his trust in these, these weirdos from Florida, right? I mean, it's pretty awesome. But I, as we finish the hall of faith from Hebrews chapter 11 today, it ends by saying that all of these people we've been talking about in Hebrews 11 are to be commended for their faith. And I wondered, you know, what, what does that for us, if we get to the end of our lives and we, and we go to be with Jesus and he commends us for our faith, what will that have looked like practically? And that's what I want to address this morning. I think the first thing we see, though, is that, is that faith ultimately is the on-ramp into God's epic story of redemption. That's, that's what faith is. That's how we get started off uh, in, in a life of faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So you kind of have to know the background here, right? This is Joshua Chapter 2, the Israelites are on the verge of coming into the promised land, but first they go, they want to go spy out Jericho, which is the first big city they want to take, and they want to see what's going on in Jericho. So Joshua chapter 2, we're going to read a bunch of Bible here um, from Joshua 2. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where, the, where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with all the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So, a couple of questions. Why are these guys at a prostitute's house? That's, that's a really important question here. I mean, momentary weakness, temptation, I don't know. The other question is, why would Rahab take this risk? I mean, this is like pretty much the same story as, as Corey Ten Boom, right, who, who hid the, the Jews from the Nazis and then lied about it. And then we always ask, you know, is, is it okay to lie? Is that, is that a sin in that circumstance? 
Well, let's keep reading. I think we'll find the answers to our questions in the rest of the text. So starting in verse 8, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of the Lord, or the fear of you, has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, when you, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by, by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will, will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell us, tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. So my hunch is that Rahab invited these guys into her home because she was looking for a way to serve God. Somehow, some way, God had already changed her heart, and she already was living by faith. And she said, this is my moment. Here, here's a chance for me to serve God. So like in verses 9 through 11, okay, it says that everybody in Jericho was afraid of God. They heard about what had happened about 40 years prior when God led the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They heard the news about what God had done. And, and probably everyone in the city is thinking, oh no, here they come. They're going to do the same thing to us. They're going to destroy us too. And so they're afraid. But, but Rahab hears this and she says, this is good news to me because the God of the heavens, the God of the universe is coming. And he's, he's going to come and make his name great somehow, some way through Jericho. And even if that means that everything I know, the destruction of my hometown, even if that's what it means, it's still good news because it means God gets the victory. It means God gets the glory. So, so she's got, really this is like a matrix, red pill, blue pill moment for her. You guys know the matrix? Most young people don't know the matrix anymore. Um, so if you know the matrix, I don't know what that says about your age, but... Um, uh, I was about to say Morpheus. Morpheus gives Neo a choice. He says, you can take the blue pill and you can stay stuck in your little you know, world where you think everything is fine, but you're really you're just being fed to machines. Or you can take the red pill and you can be awakened to what's really going on, which is that we're in this like colossal battle you know, and, and life is really hard, but at least we're free and we can fight. So that's, that's a red pill, blue pill moment. And Rahab chooses the red pill. She says, I'm, I'm not going to go back to my, my old life and pretend everything is fine and just live comfortably in my, in my hole in the wall, literally. I'm going to take the red pill. I'm going to choose faith. And in so doing, she changes her allegiance. The allegiance of her heart is no longer to herself. It's now to God. And that's what we find. When we find salvation in Jesus Christ... By faith, it is a complete and total change of allegiance. Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, you've got to get behind this line. 
or else. You gotta get behind me. You gotta, you gotta be with me or you're against me. And, and when we do this, when we, when we have that change of heart, that change of allegiance, we become part of God's epic story of redemption. So a great example of this is John Calvin. I don't know how many of you know much about John Calvin, but he was a, he was a reformer, a, a theologian in the 1500s, right after Martin Luther, he kind of uh, came into, onto the scene. And after he became a Christian, he decided he wanted to leave France, where he was from, and, and go to Strasbourg, Austria, and he wanted to go there because he just wanted to live alone and write theology books his whole life. That's all he wanted to do. But on the way to Austria, there's this, there's this war going on, so he's got to go around like the normal route, and he ends up going through Geneva, Switzerland. And he's only planning to stay there one night, but then William Farrell happened. William Farrell is this like fiery redheaded guy, okay? And he, apparently that night he hears about John Calvin he knocks on Calvin's door and says, God told me that you're supposed to stay here and be our pastor and bring reform to this city. And John Calvin's like, um, no, I'm going to Strasbourg to write theology books and get away from people like you. And, and uh, so William Farrell says, if you leave this city tonight, may God curse all your studies. I'm like, I don't know what that would look like for God to curse your studies. But, but anyway, whatever, whatever happened, Calvin decided to stay, and he ended up being a pastor there for most of the rest of his life, and we have the Presbyterian Church because of Calvin. We have Reformed theology because of Calvin, essentially, and what, imagine, imagine if he had said no. Imagine if he said, no, I'm just going to write theology, but he said, okay, maybe, maybe God's doing something bigger with me here. Maybe I'll stay and see what God will do. And that's what faith is about. Faith is, is seeing that God is authoring a much bigger story than our little stories. Something, something greater is going on in this world. The kingdom of God is coming. It's a story of redemption of the whole world. And we could be a part of it by faith. If, if we can just say to God, God, here I am. I want in. I'm at your disposal. Use me how you will. But that's a scary thing to say. That's a scary, hard thing to say to God because we, we like being the author, authors of our own stories. We like to have control. It's hard to let go of the reins of our lives. But if you know God, then, then this is the most free place you can be to be able to say to him, I'll do whatever you need me to do, whenever you need me to do it. That's the most free way to be because we have absolute trust that God is so good to us. So Rahab, she seems to have understood this. And then we read later on in, in Matthew 1, there's this genealogy that a lot of people just want to skip over. For It's understandable. But in Matthew 1, 5, 5 and 6, it says, and, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab joins up with Israel after Jericho gets, gets demolished, settles down with a guy named, named Salmon, probably a fisherman, who, who she ends up becoming David's great-great-grandmother, King David. And then obviously we know that means that she's in the line of Jesus. She's an ancestor of Jesus Christ. 
And 3,500 years later, we're still talking about her. Because why? Because she lived by faith. She's, she's to be commended for, for looking to jump into God's story of redemption. Next thing we see about faith is we think about how does this practically work out in our lives is that living, in living by faith, God's victories become our victories. Now we're going to read Hebrews eleven thirty and then 32 through 35. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. So going, going back to this, the story of Jericho, right? If we advance a little bit in, in Joshua, we get to Joshua 5 slash 6. And, um, you know, it, this is the story of how Israel goes and they march around this city for like seven days and they're blowing trumpets. And then at the end of the seven days, they're supposed to give a great shout and the walls fall down. There's a song about it. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Anyway, um, but... The only reason this happens is because of what it says in Joshua 5, 13 and 14, and then verses, verse 6, 2. So right before they go to Jericho, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. I picture him kind of like Maximus from Gladiator, you know. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, no, <laughs> but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Okay? Verse 2 of chapter 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. So what we're supposed to get from this is that this is not Israel's victory. This is God's victory. In fact, I would say that Israel could not have been there at all. And God would have just destroyed Jericho for his own glory, because that's what God wanted to do. But God was saying, here's Israel, here's your red pill, blue pill moment. You can be part of this victory if you want, if you live by faith. Um, If you don't live by faith, if you decide you're going to do it your own way, you're probably going to get slaughtered by who? By the commander of the army of the Lord. Not a guy to be trifled with. But if you do this weird thing where you march around the city seven times and you blow trumpets and you shout, then, then you're going to be part of a huge victory. Why? So that they would know that they're not the ones who won the victory. So they would know that it's not their glory. It's God's glory. There's no other explanation for this other than that God won the battle. It's God's victory. And we need to understand the Bible is not a record of great people doing great things and achieving awesomeness. And they're not, the Bible is not a record of, of why people should be commended for their achievements or successes. The Bible is a, is a story of God's glorious acts, of God's mighty works, of, of why God should be commended and glorified. And so these people in the hall of faith 
they're to, be, they're to be commended for what? For their faith. And that's it. Look at, look at the other people that, that he mentions. Gideon, Samson, David, the prophets. He says they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They, they quenched fires. Maybe, maybe he's thinking about like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. By faith, they set aside a pursuit of personal glory and personal victory and they pursued God's glories. And they wanted to be a part of God's victories. But most people don't, most of us don't live that way. We don't look at life that way. Most of us want to be commended for, for our hard work. We want to be known for our successes and our achievements. We, we want the glory. Even to the point where, where in some places in America, churches and, and religion kind of have, have turned faith into this like transaction we make with God. Like, God, I'll, I'll be faithful so that in, in turn you'll give me blessings. No, that's not how it works. That's not biblical whatsoever. Look at, look at the hall of faith. Look at who's in there, okay? Rahab, we've already talked about, is a prostitute. Samson liked to visit prostitutes. He also killed a bunch of people with like a jawbone of a donkey okay um not that's a weird story of samson gideon is a coward david is an adulterer and a murderer these are the guys in the hall of faith it's not a hall of fame it's a hall of faith but by god by by god's grace he allowed them to be part of his story of redemption God's going to win whatever victories he wants to win. Nothing can stop him. And he's more likely, please don't take offense at this, but he's more likely to use knuckleheads and nobodies for his purposes than he is to use great people of great achievement. It's not to say he, he can't or won't. It's just that it's more likely because then it's obvious who should get the glory. So practically, let's think about how this can happen in our lives, how this can work out. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So that's not supposed to be taken as, if you love God, he'll give you whatever you want. This is, it's, it's actually, if you love God, he will change your heart to match his heart. He will change your heart so that now you want what he wants. So his victories become our victories. Let me ask you, what, for you today, when you woke up this morning, you're probably thinking about something like this, like, what would make today a win for you? Or what would make this next week a win for you? What would make the, the next month, the rest of this year, a win for you? What would make 2021 a win for you, other than it's just, it's not 2020? Praise God. Okay, think about that. It's probably something very different for everybody. What if what we consider to be wins actually starts to look more and more like what God considers to be wins? Like, what if tomorrow when you wake up, you start to think, oh, maybe a win for me today would be something that God wants, and I'm just part of it. What, that doesn't mean, don't hear me saying this, it doesn't mean that you have to go be a, a missionary or a pastor. It could mean that. 
but that's definitely not what it has to be. It's not what it is for most people. What if instead, maybe it's just you decide, I'm going to do my job for God's glory, not for mine. Or what if it's, I'm going to take this skill that I have, this talent, I'm going to use it for the church instead of just for myself and my own family. Or I would encourage you to do this. Read the Bible, read through it, and, and think about, as you read, the things that you see in it that God wants. And then ask yourself, do I want that? So like if, if God says it's a win, he, he doesn't use that terminology obviously, but if basically he does say that, if it's a win for you to be weak so that he can be strong through you, do you consider that a win? Or if God says it's better to give than to receive, do you consider that a win? Or if God says don't return evil for evil, like if somebody insults you, don't insult them back, bless them back, do you consider that a win? We, we will if we're walking by faith, and, and that's going to be a gradual change in us. It's not like everybody does this perfectly overnight, but if by faith we walk with Jesus, we're going to find that more and more we want the things Jesus wants. And we're also going to notice as we walk with Jesus that faith is going to completely change the way we view suffering. So, Hebrews 11 concludes with this. Starting in verse 35, it says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. Obviously, we can think of Paul. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep, and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Um, John the Baptist, great example of that. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The author is probably thinking a lot about the, the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were, they were supposed to go to the Israelites and, and say, guys, I'm warning you, if you don't turn away from these idols that you're worshiping, if you don't turn away from your sin, God is going to bring about destruction and exile on you. And what did the Israelites think about that? Most of them were like, you're, you're liars. You're, you're not telling the truth. That's, that's not possible. God loves us. It doesn't matter what we do. Or, or they were like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that truth. Like there was actually kings in the later part of Israel's history, who would surround themselves with false prophets just to tell them what they wanted to hear. And when a real prophet came, they're like, see, you're lying, because all the other guys, they're, they're telling me what I want to hear. So you must be lying. And what did they do to the prophets then? They killed them. They persecuted them. Tortured them. We can expect persecution in this life. I means the apostles, all of them, all of them were persecuted most of them were martyred for their faith. Um, countless Christians in the last 2,000 years have been persecuted for their faith, and it's still happening around the world right now. Christians are still the most persecuted group of people in the world. Just maybe you don't feel it here as much. But it's not a surprise. I mean, Jesus says in Luke 6, 22, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you, 
And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I mean, suffering is more likely for Christians than, than really any group of people simply because we believe the gospel. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, but here's how this works. The gospel, we think it's good news. It is good news. But, but it's, in the gospel, Jesus is not telling us, you're fine just the way you are. He's telling us anything but that. In fact, what he's telling us is that you really need to change. Like, you, you, you just need a new heart. <laughs> he's saying, like, you, you need to change your allegiance. Remember I said there's a, there's a line in the sand that Jesus has drawn. He said, you've got to get off your side and get on my side. You have to turn away from your sin. Repent of your sin. You, you need to stop worshiping anything but, but Jesus. And, and that's a really hard message to hear for a lot of people. Unless, in fact, unless the Spirit enables people to want to hear that, not only are we not going to hear it well, we're, gonna act, we're actually going like, to scoff at it. Right? We're going we're gonna to throw it back in, in people's faces and say, that's, that's a bunch of baloney. Don't you tell me that stuff. I don't need to change. I'm fine the way I am. So, quite often, when people don't want to hear that message, if, if they feel emboldened enough, and especially if the society where they live is supportive of it, Christians get silenced in one way or another. So, I need to ask you this. How will you respond if, in, in your lifetime, you experience, let's say, social or economic penalties for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will you respond to that? We need to be thinking about that, because it's a real possibility in our lifetimes. How will you respond? Will you reject Jesus and say, it's just too hard, I can't do it? Or will you endure suffering because, well... I know it's hard, but Jesus is greater. He's done more for me. It really depends on faith. We need faith to view suffering that way. It's just not possible otherwise. Matt Chandler, who uh, is a pastor who's actually been through quite a bit of suffering himself, he says, comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved and not a providence of God. It's a problem to be solved. We're, think about how, how obsessed our society is with ending suffering. It's because most of us are living for our own glory. We're living for our own comfort. And in that case, suffering is literally the worst thing possible. Because it's like, you know, we have such, such a limited view of life. We think life is just this. If this is all we have, then I better enjoy every moment of it or else I'm wasting my time. So suffering is a real waste of time. But for God's glory, we can actually be content with suffering. And in fact, we could actually be, we could actually rejoice over what suffering produces. This is definitely not to say that we like to suffer. <laughs> no. But we can rejoice over what it produces. Romans 5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endur endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So just take 2020 again, for example. We love to pick on 2020 now. So much has gone wrong. So much has been hard. 
everything has just been completely out of whack. No one is going to be sad to see 2021 come unless 2021 is like, 2020, hold my beer. You know, like, okay, well, in that case, let's just move on to the 2030s. But, yeah, it's, it's been a year filled with hard things, and, and it could make us grow in bitterness and fear. And that doesn't take any faith. Or, by faith, we can trust that even 2020 is part of God's grand story of redemption. Amazing. Like, God is not surprised by this year. <laughs> Maybe he is using it to strengthen the church through trials. Maybe he is reminding us that we depend on him for everything. Maybe he is giving us new opportunities to share our faith with our neighbors that just weren't there before. I don't know. I mean, maybe 2020 is a win for God somehow. <laughs> Crazy to think about. But by faith, we can view it that way. We can view suffering that way. We can view trials that way. Without, without faith, we can't. Why is that? Well, it's the last two verses of, the, of this chapter. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Everyone in the hall of faith had faith in a future person, a promised Messiah. Not, they didn't know who Jesus was, they didn't know that his name was going to be Jesus of Nazareth or when he was going to come. They just knew that God promised he was coming and that he was going to save the world. So their faith completely changed their worldview. And it was faith in someone who wasn't even there yet. Now, how much more then can we endure whatever suffering comes our way? How much more then can we look to get caught up in God's victories because we already know who Messiah is. His name is Jesus. He's come. We have a record of his life. We, we know as much about him as God wants us to know, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us every single day. They, those people in the Hall of Faith, they had hope in a promise that was not yet realized. We have hope in a promise that's been fulfilled. And if it's been fulfilled, if Jesus has already come once, then we can take it to the bank. He's coming again. He's going to put an end to, su to suffering. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to put an end to death. And in that day when we stand before him, he's going to commend us, not for our achievements, not for anything we've done. He's going to commend us for our faith because he's going to commend Jesus for everything he's done. And Jesus says, you're with me. God will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant if by faith we find ourselves in Christ. Let's pray.